Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You've chosen to tune in to DLC, your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be, and that is completely free thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace. Squarespace. Squarespace brings the show to you. DLC, of course, the show all about games in their many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles. Also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I am your host, Jeff Canada. That's spelled with two N's and one T. And I am joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis. The guy who makes all of his announcements in front of a lumber company. Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Happy new console week to you. Happy oh, new console you week. You remembered. Uh, to you. I think it was a landscaping company. <laughs> landscaping Next or to a store I can't mention on this show and a <laughs> funeral home. Happy new console week, everybody. Oh my gosh, our last episode before the generational change. It does. It does feel like a generational change week. It's the last week before the generation changes. It feels like a generational change week. Uh, I'm so excited. We have a ton to talk about as we get ready for those new consoles. We got news. We got games to discuss. But most of all, we have a fantastic guest to do it with. You know, you know. actually, before I even get to that, uh, it's part of our what I've decided is our November theme month of... Uh, designers named alex that's we're, we're just doing a whole theme of <laughs> of game developers named alex because you know dlc always stands for your downloadable canada and your downloadable christian this week we're so excited because dlc stands for designer and lead creator because most recently lead gameplay designer at dice la alex solman joins us for the first time alex how you doing I'm doing all right, guys. How are you doing? I am proper thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We're excited to talk to you as well. Uh, and it's been it's been a, a delight. We had last week the first our first show in November. We had another Alex uh, game developer talking to us about game development. I'm so excited to have another esteemed Alex with us. First, my first question to you is: Lead gameplay designer. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that uh, to me before we we started that. Um, that's sometimes called the feel designer, right? The gameplay <laughs> feel designer. Can you tell me what that is and what you what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, so 
you know, most games, all games live or die on their gameplay. Uh, and a gameplay designer is usually the, you know, often the primary person responsible for how the gameplay works. Um, what does that mean? Well, that means everything from um, the response to the buttons, the systems that, that you know, allow you to do the things that you want to do, um, to the, you know, to the tuning and the balancing of, of how that experience might play out. Um, yeah, it's often called the field designer. I often call it the field designer because the, the game feel is something that I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with how all games feel, not just the games that I'm lucky enough to work on. Um, and and so, you know, it's the, the job that I do invariably is a very cross-disciplinary disciplinary job. I get to work with animators and engineers and, you know, and other designers to kind of build the very core of the way an experience feels and plays. Um, it's something that I've been lucky enough to do, uh, you know, for 20 odd years now, not all of that as a designer, but, you know, a lot of it as a, as a designer and, um, you know, that, that how the game feels on the controller or on the mouse and keyboard, what the, how the game responds and what actions you're allowed to do, um, you know, at a, a micro level and a macro level are often, you know, within a gameplay designer's remit. Potentially annoying question, Alex. And if you can't answer, I understand. Uh, I'm not looking for hot, hot goss or secrets, but I feel like in my head, if you just walk into offices and go make it feel better, <laughs> like, <laughs> like can, without going too deep, cause I wouldn't be able to follow, but maybe for our listeners who can't like uh, in the micro, like what, what is that? Cause there are certainly games we've all played where it's like, this feels amazing. And mm-hmm. like, I'll, I'll do an example. So no one else has to, this is my opinion. I'm not putting it on anyone else on this show. Tony Hawk Pro Skater 5 felt Mm -hmm. awful. Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 and 2 Remaster felt incredible. Um, So like what, how do you make it feel better? How do you make God of War feel so good versus a a game where it just doesn't connect? It's it's a great question. I I think it's, the, the, the funny thing about gameplay design is it's, I don't really think it's rocket science. What it is, is super attention to detail. So, for example, you know, if you are a, I'm just going to use you know, abstract examples here. If you are a third person action game, um, then when you press a button, you want the action that you, you know, that you expect to be responsive. And what does responsive mean? Well, it varies, right? It varies on the type of game you're playing. Fundamentally, video games are about agency, right? They're about control. They're about your ability to wrestle this thing, to do the thing you want it to do and, and execute the action that you want it to perform. And in a you know in a third person game, when I press the button, it, it's the animation, right? It's the animation that plays out, how quickly it winds up, how quickly it executes. It's the sound effect. It's the flash on the UI. It's the um, you know it's the um, it's the sound effects and, and visual effects and, and and all of those. And then it's also the response that you see on the other side. So when you hit something, it's the way that responds, the, the animation it plays, the sound effect it plays, the reaction animation it plays, where it goes, how it flies, um, you know, and 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 so a lot of what you are doing is focusing very much on the minutia of all of those tiny details. And many of them, often when you play a lot of video games, uh, you know, as I, as I try to do uh, as with this kind of lens on, um, it can be quite jarring to play a game where you press the button and the animation doesn't, doesn't play out quickly or, or it plays out for too long. Uh, you know, Ghost of Tsushima, for example, is a good, ex- is a good example of a game where they, you can tell that they've got, 
that that chemistry that makes the the combat and makes the movement and makes the horse and even makes the UI and even makes the the opening you know some some of the menu options feel responsive it's not necessarily just the avatar on screen it can be everything from you know Kratos's blade swinging to drifting a car to slamming a card on the you know on the Hearthstone board you know all of those things are fundamentally about gameplay feel and all of the details and all of the minutiae that comes together to make that button press at that moment feel powerful, feel responsive, feel successful. It's all those intangibles, uh, yes. it seems to me. And and it's interesting because I feel like our role as pundits, as critics, as people who you know espouse our opinion for a living uh, – is really tied very closely to your role Mm -hmm. in that I often find myself really having to sometimes struggle and sometimes really be reflective in order to isolate what it is that I like or don't like. What, why does it feel good? Why does it feel bad? What, you know, you go, Oh, this just doesn't feel right. And I think the the trick must be in your, in your role to, really understand what is missing or what needs to be tweaked in order to make it feel right. And I I feel like sometimes I have that same challenge in trying to articulate what is the thing that's missing or needs to be tweaked when I play a game. And I'm just like, I just don't like how it feels. It's got to be difficult. Yes. Yes, you are spot on. It is. I think a lot of design is about reading between the lines. Yeah, you hear you hear the response to something that you've made and you often have to kind of interpret that through the lens by which the you know the intent behind the original idea was or the level by which it's currently finished or you know ultimately what that thing was supposed to do and sometimes the response is very spot on the nose, you know, he's on the nose and you're like, absolutely. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And sometimes you're like, well, you didn't understand this because this thing was missing or it didn't do this the way we know it wants to, or we haven't got to polishing that. And therefore we know we're going to make that better. So it's okay that it feels, doesn't feel great right now. I'll give you an example. Um, there was an animation in one of the games that I was working on, a, an attack animation. Um, and I worked quite closely with the animator and the engineer and the, the VFX and, you, and, and sound effects guys to get it in. Um, and everyone complained that it was too slow. Um, it felt too slow. In other words, when you press the button, it took too long for it to actually hit the thing that it wanted to hit. Um, and, and it took too long to cancel it or get out of it. Um, and, what we did to fix that was we actually slowed the animation down. We actually made the move longer. Mm. But what we did was we made it that the minute you press the button for the very first time, those opening frames that would play before the, before the actual impact uh, point occurred, we actually animated them in a much more kind of accelerated fashion. So the arm pulled back very quickly and held and then slashed down very quickly and held. So it's, it was more what we call pose to pose rather than being a kind of linear animation, a, a more physically accurate animation that might have been mocapped where it kind of pulls the arm back, swings and hits. We sort of exaggerated it in all the right ways. And then we actually dragged it out by an extra 10 or so frames towards the end to make it a fraction longer. And all the response we got back afterwards was this feels so much faster. This feels so much better. It's incredible. And, and, and in the background, me and the animator are sitting there with our devious fingers going, ha ha ha. We know that actually we made it longer, but what we did was we solved the complaint, which was doing the animation didn't feel powerful enough. It didn't feel responsive enough. Yeah. Um, and and you, you're absolutely right. There are a load of intangibles there that are that are, 
you know, require a lot of experience. You know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have learned from, you know, the best working on God of War, a couple, you know, working on a couple of God of Wars and, um, you know, and, and learning the ways and the tricks, basically, and all these details that as they come together can make things go from being very clunky or janky to feeling very fluid. And, and, you know, and ultimately what you're trying to do is get the controller out of the player's way. You know, a lot of designers talk about this, about feel and flow, you know, finding ways where you're just in the zone and you don't even really notice the controller. And every yeah. time you get jarred it, you know, out of that is a failure on, on a design. You know, on a gameplay designer's part, I would argue, you know, you've, you've, and some games do it, they're okay with it, right? Some guy, games are just okay with it being clunky and, 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 and you know, and, and loose and, and not particularly responsive because they're after bigger, they've, they've got bigger fish to fry. And that can be okay. There's games that I've played that, you know, make me shiver when I look at them because they're, they feel so clunky to me, but they're super fun to, you know, to enjoy and, and experience. But I would argue, and, and, you know, there's a couple of stories that I think we could talk, or a story in particular we could talk about that I think tackles that is, if you can nail the feel and if you can get the controller out of the player's way, your game's going to be better because of it. You know, it doesn't mean that the yeah. meta game or the PV, PVP balancing, all the other things aren't going to be wrong, but if you can get the feel right, you're going to be, you're off to a good place. Now you mentioned using your experience as, as a resource in knowing that, you know, slowing it down was the right answer to making it feel like it was sped up. But is it is it really iteration and experience? I mean, are you are you trying a lot of things, or do you not have the luxury to be able to try a lot of things in those situations? No, it's definitely about iteration. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I always try and do as a designer is try and I, I often call it a north star, right? I try and put a north star out and go, I think it needs to be this, and let's prototype it and sort of get it in game and get it on the controller or get it on the mouse and keyboard as quickly as we can so that we can figure out whether that is the right answer and because ultimately you know every game is a recipe and every recipe is different even when it's a sequel you know when it's a sequel yes you've got a lot of base rules that you know you can rely on the box is somewhat defined that you're working within but you're still going to make fundamental changes. And the minute you make a fundamental change, it has ripple effects across all the other systems in the, mm. in the game. Um, and so, yes, I, 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 you know, my most recent gig at Dice LA, which is a, a studio that thrives on iteration. Like we, we, we really, we were very focused on gameplay first and building everything, you know, really rapidly. Um, and I think that is a, a very powerful way to discover this kind of stuff because yes it's part experience but it's also you know what the recipe currently is for that that um that experience that you're trying to build or that you're trying to hit and and uh, you know as i said i don't want this to necessarily only focus on an avatar or the player character or the vehicle it also refers to the ui and the menus and you know it, it, it and and the how quickly the game boots up how quickly it goes you know through loading screens or mm. or how quickly you know even tips on the screen how quickly they move you know every single time a player presses a button and expects a response is an opportunity for a gameplay designer to make it better. Mm. Um, and I think that's something, you know, it's not always gameplay designers that do it. Sometimes it's UX designers. Sometimes, you know, it's other designers that do it too, but fundamentally gameplay is the principle by which we're everything, you know, rides on. And, and therefore the, the more you can make it smooth and responsive and reliable and readable. And, you know, especially when you start talking about PVP and, you know, understanding what your opponent's doing so that it doesn't yeah. feel like they're cheating. And, you know, there's so many ramifications and so many minutiae, like you said, it is all about those, those small little things and them all adding up to make a good experience. Is there someone in your role on every game or is it more just big teams? 
Um, that's a good question. I, 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 I think the big teams are lucky enough. You know, when I, when I worked at, at Santa Monica, there were, you know, I can't remember, maybe six combat designers, right? And all we did was build the combat ga- systems and the combat gameplay for Kratos and his opponents. Um, and that was our entire focus. And then there was a separate group that did level design. There was a separate group that did, you know, kind of tech design and UI design. So we fundamentally, we built the combat for that game. Um, other games I've worked on, you know, the very first game I designed on, I was the only combat designer. I was the only, you know, there was only mm-hmm. two designers on the project and I was building the, the gameplay design and, you know, and designers often tend to wear many hats, especially in smaller projects. So I think, yes, larger teams have the luxury of being able to be more specialized with with their roles and with the, you know, with, within the design craft, within all crafts, but certainly within the design craft. Um, um, but I think that, like I said, I don't, I would argue that gameplay design isn't rocket science. I don't think that I am a genius. I think I'm just a nerd for details. And I right. think I'm someone that is obsessed by, you know, I, I, I play a lot of driving games, right? Driving games are one of my favorite genres. And I think the reason for that is because driving games are a really good demonstration of player agency, right? That vehicle is in constant control. You have constant control over how much that car accelerates, brakes, drifts, does whatever it does. Um, and I would argue it's similar for FPS games, right? A lot of people outside of the industry like to call us sociopaths because we like shooting people in the head all the time. But guns are fundamentally a very responsive vessel for gameplay, for agency, right? When I press a button, I get a very clear response of the weapon firing and things happening and a very clear response on the other side of whether I hit or missed or a result. You know, it's, it's, a two, it's, it's a two-stage process. I press the button and it's the result that follows that determines whether I feel good or bad or understand what happened. And I think, you know, weapons in general are a very easy to get, very quick to draw satisfaction from action and therefore i th- i would argue that's one of the reasons why fps's are in general a popular uh, popular genre because at our core we want to be in control and we want agency over the game and you know weapons are a very immediate way of getting that so um yeah i i i've, I've spun on a tangent slightly there no, but great but, but yes I, I think that if you're a larger team you have the luxury of being able to specialize if you're a smaller team there's lots of designers that can do this thing as long as they're thinking in this mindset of right. i like to i like to say that i always try and think about the player experience and i'm i'm an experienced designer at thinking about it from that perspective and trying to interpret everything that the player is going to do in and make it fun and make it enjoyable and make it satisfying or make it challenging or make it difficult you know it depends on the context but that's kind of what i try and do so cool man um you mentioned uh in the last little bit there that part of your job is you know tool tips and loading screens and what that experience feels like and as Christian mentioned, we're on the cusp of this new generation <laughs> where, you know, there are going to be shorter, if not eliminated completely, loading screens. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you are excited about with this new generation of consoles as a developer and specifically as a gameplay developer. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, as a gameplay developer, I'm certainly ex- excited about the DualSense. Um, again, yeah. you know feedback is you know and and tactical you know feedback on what you're doing is is an important um avenue by which the player can feel empowered and, and get control um and early word is that the dual sense is pretty rad so i'm definitely excited about that um i think from a 
from a general designer perspective, um, the, 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 well, I guess from my perspective, the loading times are exciting. I think, you know, the, the ability to go almost back to the cartridge days where things can just be, you know, immediate. And I think, um, you know, Alex last week talked very you know, eruditely about that idea of, you know, not losing immersion and, you know, being, staying in the flow and, you know, not being broken out by, you know, loading screens and jarring. I think if I'm honest, I think a lot of games these days have already solved that. Um, mm, you know, when I think yeah. about Tsushima, right, you know, there's one very super ridiculously short load screen. How on earth they do that at the start of the game? And then you never see a load screen again. I mean, yes, when you uh, fast travel, you see a brief one. But, you know, and I suppose you could argue, well, we can take that out. So that's nice. Um, I, I think that is going to help. I don't know if it's necessarily going to revolutionize things, um, but I'm excited about it. What I, what I would say is one of the things I'm, I'm the most excited about uh, the next gen is if you if you think about the open world games that we have today right they all have to store a certain amount of square footage you know or even square mileage in memory at any one time obviously depending on the speed by which you you as a player can traverse that world they have to have a large portion of the world in memory all the time so that they can seamlessly stream in you know way ahead of you the next thing that you need if you think about the load times that the new gen um, you know, in, increased memory too, but the load times of the new gen. In theory, and I'm not, I'm not technical enough to be sure about this, but in theory, you could shrink that square footage quite dramatically, and and take all of that detail that you might have in that large area on current gen and compress it into a much smaller space because you can stream in the next thing so quickly. Um, mm, yeah. You know, and especially when you think about Unreal Engine helping with a lot of the uh, LODs and a lot of the kind of job that is needed to sort of scale animate uh, visual geometry down so that at a distance it's not taking up too much rendering time you know if you think about compressing a lot of that space and the density by which you could now build these spaces both in you know avatars people vehicles clutter objects things collapsing you know AI, all these things that you can now cram into a smaller space because you can load everything so much quicker. That, as a designer, gets me very, very excited because there's a lot more opportunity to have gameplay within a smaller space because of the density increase. And you know, I'm hoping that some of the new games that are starting to build new engines and push forward with with new technology will really be able to leverage that idea of being able to store so much more data um, in a much smaller space and, and load it in very quickly. And, you know, I mean, I'm excited about the, the you know, the, the way in which the worlds that we, that we play in will become more involved and dense and detailed and, you know, and interactive potentially too, you know, it's, that's that, that to me is one of the things that excites me. Dude, that has gotten me very excited just in talking to you about it. I, I mean, the idea that we, we have this, this, next layer of density mm -hmm. that we haven't even experienced yet because things can just get more concentrated into a smaller section because that's all that needs to be in memory at any given time. That's, that's pretty awesome. And uh, I mean, just looking at how dense games are now, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I the, going to the next level. And I just, I like the idea that perhaps that means that worlds will feel less like static diorama that I'm exactly. walking through and more like things that are alive and every little object is, even if it's not super important is interactable. And you know, it just feel interact interactive, I should say. And, uh, I don't know. I think that will, will, 
bring more life to these worlds and make them more, feel more vibrant and real. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of design challenges there because, you know, more cluttered, you know, and more stuff does not necessarily make for a better experience. But right. I think having that, you know, having that in our arsenal and being able to kind of, like you said, you know, really ramp up that detail. And then, and then if you also think about, you know, the other thing that, um, uh, a, a very res- re- renowned programmer, uh, uh, Mike Micah, was talking about on a podcast I was listening to recently. Raycast that you know, ray, ray tracing is is a really interesting thing, right? It's going to allow us to make visuals much better and improve. You could argue to a certain extent we've been cheating that for a while. Now we're doing it for real, and therefore it's going to look more responsive and more reactive and more more dynamic. But at the end of the day, you've got a million rays, you know, bouncing around the world, intersecting between all objects. There's a lot of data you can draw from that right you can draw those interaction points and understand what the material types are or understand what the physical properties are of each thing Um, and in theory we've got so much we can pull so much more data um, from the world through rays um, than we might normally do um, or might be able to do without rays and um, that's something that really blew my mind when he started talking about that because I'd only been thinking about ray tracing in terms of, yeah, it's going to look pretty, but now they're talking about ways that it could allow us to in- extract more information from the world around you and, and and deal with, you know, and understand more about what's intersecting with what, hitting what, and, and you know, that that sounds really interesting to me and could lead to a, an increase in the level of world fidelity and interaction fidelity and um, physical fidelity of the world, which which could be really exciting too. That's incredible. I don't know. I'm not even sure I'm wrapping my head around that, but the, the idea that, that delivering not just the uh, direction of light, but literally information about the world is delivered in the same way that rays are traced around the environment. Is that the yeah, idea? basically. Yeah. Cause I mean, when, the way, as, again, I'm not an engineer. I'm a, I'm a Fisher price coder at best is what I always say. <laughs> um, but, but when a ray intersects with a piece of the world, right, you've got to draw the material from that in order to understand its reflective capabilities and, you know, to make it look physically accurate that it's about the light bouncing off of that object and the materials and the, the nature of what that object is. But if you could also, you know, extract from that information about what the physical properties are and how those rays are bouncing and how the thing that you're firing or throwing or driving or bouncing is intersecting with the world, you're pulling in so much more data. I read a, I read a story about, um, I forget what university it was, but there was a university that did an experiment with a pinball game and they had a, they had a, a pinball, um, that was firing out a, a, you know, millions and millions of rays. And they basically built a physics engine, um, and built a pinball game with a pinball that was just ray casting using ray tracing to bounce, you know, to understand where in the world it was and what it was wow. intersecting with. And they basically built a physics engine in 50 lines of code, they said, because all it needed wow. to do was say, fire out these rays every frame and tell me what the world is telling you about where it is. Um, wow. And again, I, I'm the same as you. I was a bit like, uh, I'm not quite sure if my brain understands that, but <laughs> yeah. something about it sounds incredible and I want more of it. So I'm, I'm yeah, hoping sure. that as we move forward and move past this cross-gen, you know, um, this cross-gen period and into more, you know, truly next-gen experiences, we'll be able to leverage some of those new things to, to maximum effect. Yeah. If that's what's so exciting about being uh, on the cusp of a new generation of hardware is, you know, you think back to what the first few PlayStation 4 games were yeah. compared to The Last of Us Part 2. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that's that's the journey we're about to start in this new generation is things are are exciting now, but it's it's where we're going to be in three, five years time. It's going to be 
you know, really, really cool. All so, I heard is that uh, we were right last week when I said uh, ray tracing is great. Like that's all <laughs> I think that I tried to distill it down. To yeah, what because, it, you know, I've been anti ray tracing this whole time. <laughs> uh, the, you know, I want to ask you one more thing before we get into the, the meat of the show, Alex. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about crunch and you know, all the stuff with uh, CD Projekt Red and Cyberpunk and and, you know, not not just that studio, but across the entire industry, crunch has been a real issue that we've speculated on. And, and Christian and I talk from a position of, you know, not being developers. And I, I think it would be useful if you're able to talk about it to get your perspective on crunch and and what that culture is like and whether we're right to sort of um, judge it and deride it as being something that should be uh, avoided or what do, what's your mm-hmm. position and what do you think we as consumers should do about it it's a great question um I, I i have a lot of thoughts i'll try and summarize um i've definitely done my fair share of horrendous crunch i mean i've worked multiple hundred hour weeks on projects you know to get them over the line and um you know crunched for six eight months you know seven six seven days a week 16 hour days to try and get things finished I'm older now. I have kids. Uh, I'm not as young as I once was, sadly. Um, and crunch is, you know, is a burden on our industry, I would argue. I think that, but so I, I think that there are lots of projects that are, that struggle to finish um, and force, and I'm not talking about any projects in particular, just in general, force their staff to bear the brunt of that. Um, and, I, I will say that my previous studio, Dice LA, was one of the most pr- progressive studios I've ever worked at thinking about this problem. Um, and they, they tackled it in, in two very smart ways. One, there is science that proves that working, you know, as far as I understand, more than two weeks of excessive hours ultimately leads to a, a, a law of diminishing returns because you get tired enough that you start you know, not working as focused as you might be, you start making mistakes. And ultimately those long, long extended sprints of, of consistent crunch lead to, you know, less than you might get if you worked in a more focused way. Um, but that's not to say that crunch or a very focused attention for a long, longer than you would normally do in the day isn't a motivator, right? It is. It can breed a level of camaraderie with your teammates. I mean, the the the, the guys that I went through on on um, or God of War Ascension that had a lot of crunch, um, I, you know, I made really good bonds with those people right we're, we're in the you know we're in the thick of it and we're, we're up against it and we're at, we're at the office at two in the morning sitting and joking eating, you know eating our company paid food and, and trying to get the thing finished right there is a level of camaraderie that comes from that that i think is important in what is frankly a passion and team driven you know job there are examples of games that are made by one person but when you get into these large you know, even eight, 10, 12 people from up, there's a level of camaraderie that is needed. Trust, um, you know, it's a lot like a sports team. You have to almost be like a family. You have to trust each other and know each other and be able to, you know, lean on each other to get this thing across the line because you can't do it by yourself. So, um, you know, we, we, and we at Dice LA, we would, we would never crunch, but we would have what we called finaling mode, which were these kind of, you know, stints of very focused time where we would work for about two weeks for, you know, about eight hours with, you know, with the request of no internet, you know, keep your 
outside distractions to lunch and you know, on a break in the afternoon. And we would work a very intense, focused period of time um, to a very specific schedule. We had a specific method by which we would knock off tasks and work on things. Um, and it allowed us to be very productive in a very compressed window. And then we would take a break. And then, you know, maybe a couple of weeks later, we'd do it again if needs be. But we would try and sort of do these 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 very constrained but very focused periods and that was a very responsible way i think you know of dealing with the realities of you know we talked a lot about iteration yeah like you can't predict how long it's going to take you to get a game finished it is a creative endeavor it is a creative exploration and discovery um, and therefore things are going to come up and things are going to change and you're going to have to pivot and make you know, reactions. But leadership was always good at, you know, making calls on when things just had to get cut because it just wasn't going to get get to the quality we needed. And, the, you know, our methods by which we were able to finish them were very successful. Um, so I think there are responsible ways of dealing with over time or dealing with focus requirements. And I'm not saying that any studio that isn't doing this is doing it wrong. They're doing it the way they need to do it. Um, in my experience, I would argue that that level of crunch is unsustainable and it is a, you know, it's a short gain for a long fail, I would argue. Mm. Um, and, and obviously, if you get a giant game, you know, over the line and it sells millions and everyone gets a huge fat bonus, maybe it weren't so bad, right? I've been in that situation <laughs> right. too, but I've also yeah. been in the other situation where I've killed myself for a year and then the game comes out and flops and you're like, well, you know, that was a good chunk of my life that ultimately I, I kind of enjoyed because frankly, you know, we are passionate people. We do, we, we are very lucky. I'm, I'm very lucky to get to do this job every day. Um, but that does mean it's very easy to lose yourself in it. And 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 to you know get lost in the work and get lost in the time and forget everything else and ultimately this is a job ultimately it will go away ultimately i will you know i will have other things as i get older and i've got kids and a fiance and all that stuff you know there is life going on around me and that balance point is super important and i would argue that most many companies now are much more understanding of that because we're all older right i started when i was 19 i'm in my 40s now i'm not the only one that's you know been doing this for a long time and yeah. has grown up making video games and so there's a lot of studios and companies that i think realize that you know keeping talent and maintaining consistent teams is important and the health of that team is very very important the health of those people and and killing them to get something done ultimately is a short-term short-term win so I think it's changing, but I think it's a, it's a struggle. Fascinating uh, perspective. I appreciate you sharing it. Uh, and it's it's awesome hearing about your role. I can't wait to find out what you're doing next. <laughs> but uh, let's jump in and talk about the stuff that we usually talk about on the show, starting with Story of the Week. Story of the Week. It's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week. It's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happen in the world of games this week. You can always submit stories for our consideration by sending us an email to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. It's also where you can send any comments or questions or even reviews of your own for games you'd like to hear us talk about or you would like to weigh in on on the show, dlcfeedback at gmail.com. You can also check out our subreddit that's 5x5dlc.reddit.com or head over to our discord 5x5dlc is, is the discord uh, discord.io/5x5dlc but alex you are our guest so you get first pick of stories what would you consider to be your story of the week ooh um 
So I think it's it's actually a really good week for stories. Um, I think there's two stories. There's one story in particular that's definitely my story of the week, but I'm not going to pick it because I think you guys <laughs> are going to pick it. Um, and I kind of want to be a little self-indulgent and pick something a little developer-focused. And that is um, Todd Howard talking about the new um, Bethesda engine and what it's going to yeah. do. Yes, uh, saying that it's going to be a bigger leap than from Morrowind to Oblivion was, mm-hmm. which... Boy, I remember that being uh, jaw-dropping at the time. Um, He also said, by the way, uh, Starfield isn't coming soon. (laughs) It's not, it's going to be a while still. And Starfield, we know, is slated to arrive before Elder Scrolls VI. But both of them will be using a new version of their uh, engine. I can't remember what that engine is called. I had it here, but um, it's... uh, it's interesting to me because those games, those Bethesda games have, uh, you know, a very near place to my heart. I love them dearly, but they made a lot of them on the same engine and it sort of was feeling a little, uh, a little outdated by, by the time that, um, you know, fallout four came out. And, uh, I think we were all hoping that the engine would get a big boost. So I'm curious, Alex, what, what you make of these these um, proclamations that it's a bigger leap than from Morrow into Oblivion and, and what you're hoping to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it sort of touches a little bit on what we were talking about at the start, which is, I, I and again, I, I know nothing. This is just purely a developer guessing, but I feel exclusive, like... Exclusive, <laughs> confirmed, world exclusive. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, no. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel like this is indicative of the next gen. I feel like this is a sign that next gen has new shiny things in it. It's kind of things we were talking about before that aren't just these you know, visual and, and low time benefits. They are ways in which we can fundamentally change the way we build our experiences. And particularly when you think about a game like Starfield or you think about a game like Elder Scrolls, these big open world giant, you know, sprawling expanses of of experience. I I feel like this is a sign that, you know, it's not coming soon. It's not going to be cross-gen. It's it's most certainly going to be smack bang on the new gen, Um, that this is potentially an indication of them trying to leverage that new technology in the best way that they can and, you know, I've working at a studio where you're building the engine at the same time as trying to execute the game, whether it be a new game or whether it be a sequel is a huge challenge. Often it's just about trying to get back to where you were, let alone, you know, in terms of tools and, you know, ability to actually build the gameplay that you know you're building because you've built it before. Um, but then also trying to find ways to pull in the new, you know, the shiny and new and the things that the new technology are going to allow. Um, I, I don't think they'll be the only company building a new engine. I'm sure there's other studios that are thinking about it. And um, yeah, it kind of excites me as a developer to go, oh, those those guys yeah. know how to make open worlds. They know how to make you know sprawling experiences that have hours of content and you know procedural de- content and you know all these kind of things. And what are they up to? I I, I kind of want to know. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about density in the world in the next gen, the first thing I thought was was Bethesda games. You know, their their worlds are are already feel denser than most, and to think that that is unlocked for them to get to a new level of fidelity and create even more interesting environments to walk around in and explore explore uh, has me very excited. Um, it's also interesting that uh, Todd Howard also mentioned specifically 
that their their tech stack is different than most in that you know they build in a priority for modding and mm-hmm. i love that that's carrying over into whatever this new new version of the engine will be and that that's still a priority for them because i think that's one of the things that makes their games extra special and and adds longevity to them you know you see skyrim you know however many years after it's out all these people modding in better graphics better this better that changes i i think uh that's got to be a unique kind of challenge to build that into an engine, but I'm glad that they are taking the time to make that happen because uh, I think it's one of the things that makes their games so special. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Christian, uh, what do you, what do you make of this? Are you, uh, what would you like to see out of uh, the new engine from Bethesda? Polish, I think. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's very exciting, right? Like this is what, and while we have talked about this is not soon, but this is kind of what next gen, the concept, the ambiguous concept of next gen is about, right? <laughs> like pushing, seeing new engines, things like that. It, it, it's exciting to see what new tech can bring, whether it's this year, five years, you know, whatever we're going to get. Um, Jeff, I know you and I get very excited about that. I think for me, it's like sometimes maybe Bethesda, they're so big that, there, I mean, there's Bethesda Jank is like, a, well, you know, <laughs> and I hope that some of that can be ironed out with this new engine. Because again, not a developer, um, but I would have to assume that some of that comes from the complexity and the scale of the world they're making. And then also whether or not the engine allows certain things to happen and as they interact. Um, a, a, an example where they talked about it some was uh, Bungie and Destiny, where it was like, we would have loved to have these hot patches come out, but the way we built our game and the way the engine is, we can't do that. You know, it's not built that way. And so, as you mentioned, Bethesda talked about how they prioritize modding and this, that, and the other. And I hope that they also find a way to allow whatever those inevitable uh, things are that are maybe missed to be fixed quickly and to get that polish out because I'm, I'm tired of like Fallout 76 being good now. You know, like, I'm glad it's good now, but I I wish it was good when I played it for 20 hours at first or whatever. Um, And so I hope I hope they find a way to rectify that. A couple of quotes here I want to pull out before we move on, because they make me happy. Uh, Todd Howard said, um, "The uh, you know, it's it's taking longer than we thought than we would have liked, but it's going to power everything we're doing with Starfield and Elder Elder Scrolls six. When people see the results, they'll hopefully be as happy as we are with what's on screen and also how we can go about making our games. Uh, here's the, here's the bit that I like most. He says, Howard uh, also said the game is completely single player, but is going to be a long time before it's released. Uh, they said they wanted to show Starfield off when it's ready rather than relentlessly teasing the sci-fi RPG for a long period of time. Um, we've seen obviously Bethesda do that before. And we both here. Uh, lauded them for that i think it's i think it's a great plan to to just kind of give us a short ramp, runway a short ramp up you know maybe six months you announce it in an e3 and, and release it that holiday i love that um so I, it sounds like they're kind of more on that page again and uh you know this idea that you know the uh the, it's only going to be single player. I'm I'm kind of happy to hear that too. I'll be honest. <laughs> single player games aren't dead. All right, uh, Christian Spicer, what is your story of the week? 
There are a few things I think could be fun to talk about, but I, I, I think the biggest story, and maybe this is one Alex uh, graciously left for us to mention, um, Mass Effect had um, some big news come out this week. It, I think it's unfortunate <laughs> that their community day happened on a day um, when a lot of other news in the United States also happened. Um I do think the major news networks, I'm joking here, but waited until Saturday to call the U.S. election so that we could all be on Twitter all day instead of trying to be productive was, uh, <laughs> was Very nice. Yeah, um, right. we, could all get, we could all drink is really what it was. Uh, they, no, they did this because N7, yes, right? It, it, and they did the N7. Yes, they, there yes. wasn't any wiggle room for them, no. but I got to feel like yes. even with the N7, you got to go, uh, uh Folks, just, maybe we should uh, rethink the strategy here. Just it's, like there's the game N plus, they could have had N seven plus, you know, happen on <laughs> yeah. N eight. Uh, but the news, not to have it be buried any more than it was uh, by the other news, the Mass Effect Legendary Edition has been announced. It is the much rumored, now confirmed Mass Effect one, two, and three, no three multiplayer remaster and. That little thing, that little thing at the end, kind of like Dragon Age 4, uh, there's more Mass Effect. There, There is more Mass Effect being made, and coming in 2021 is this Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Are you going to dive back in? Does this get you excited, or has the rumor been around for so long that you're like, oh, that? <laughs> Well, for me, you know, I, I, I'm definitely curious. Uh, I, this is not a – they were very clear to say this is not a remake – as we have seen remakes, this is a remaster. This is uh, upresing the textures, adding some new effects, um, faster frame rates, some visual enhancements. But it is not, you know, this is not Final Fantasy VII remake. This is not Resident Evil remake. This is this is the games. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's exciting, and it's something, as you said, that people have been expecting for a long time. And you know, every E3 for the last four years people have been like where's the mass effect <laughs> remaster announcement uh they waited until the the day that everybody was looking in a different direction but um but i think it is going to be cool these are great games and i i can't say that i'm like chomping at the bit to jump back into mass effect um personally i'm excited for a new mass effect game as you said they tease at the end but Honestly, I feel like this coming in 2021 means a new Mass Effect is is multiple years away, and um, this is to tide us over. So, you know, I, yes, great games. I'd love to see them look great again, but uh, hopefully by mid-2021, there's all kinds of new, cool, shiny next-gen stuff as well. So, I don't know. I, I You know, I like I like my newest, latest, best rather than you know, remaster, remasters, yeah. Uh, but what do you, what do you think, Alex? Um, so talking purely as a fan, um, I cannot wait for this. Uh, funny and so, I'm a I'm a big video game collector. I have a big old collection uh, of consoles and games, and it actually crossed my mind the other day. I kind of want to play Mass Effect Two again because I, it's been a while since I played it, and I would I played it through twice because I played it on 360, and then it came out on PS3, and I played it through on PS3. Um, I kind of want to play it again and I'd forgotten that they, you know, obviously the rumor had been floating around and yes, I did miss the announcement because of November 7th, but um, I am genuinely excited to, to play a shinier version of this. Um, Whether I'll play one and three, I'm not sure. Um, I'm hoping that it will do the clever thing that the PS3 version did where they Mm -hmm. 
had like the storybook version of Mass Effect 1 and you could make your choices and then play right. Mass Effect 2 with the choices that you'd made in the first game and maybe they'll do that for 3 where you could make the choices in 2 and then carry that through in 3 because I always loved the you know that progression of save game and story I thought that was super compelling I guess yeah. I'll have to build my femship again but that's okay I can probably can probably remember her and put it back together again because you know <laughs> I always played as femship and she was so cool um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I, I do like to go back and play a lot of old stuff. Um, but I also enjoy, enjoy playing, you know, some of these remasters and some of these, um, the shinier versions. So I'm in. Uh, yeah. And it's coming spring 2021 for Xbox one, PlayStation four and PC. And then, uh, we'll have forward compatibility for the next gen for series X and PlayStation five. So Maybe we don't know yet what kind of next gen stuff it'll have. If they'll have a setting for ray tracing, for example, I don't know. But uh, it'll be nice to see that game looking even prettier than it was. It was always a very, very pretty game, for sure. Yeah, I think the only thing that... I, I do think that spring 2021, as you kind of, it's like... I don't... I, maybe they just can't announce the Series X and PlayStation 5 version of it yet. Um, uh, it just feels weird to finally have the remaster come out and have it kind of be on old systems i know again yeah. a lot of people will have them a lot of people don't jump it jump into the new console generation right when it comes out i understand that um but it does feel weird to not have the announcement be across everything and kind of be like it's for these but right. not for a while yeah uh, before I get to my story of the week, I want to thank our sponsor, Squarespace, which has been a sponsor for the show and for me and the shows I've made for so long. I am so happy about that because I've also been recommending Squarespace personally to my friends and family for just as long. Uh, the first time I got a chance to use Squarespace, I knew this was the way to build a website. It, it, chances are you're going to need a website if you don't already you're going to need a website. There's so many reasons that we all need a website. If you want to turn your cool idea into a website, showcase your work, blog or publish content, even selling things. If you have a business, even online business or an, uh, a brick and mortar business, you need a website. You can sell things online easily with Squarespace. You can promote or an upcoming event, a one-time thing, special projects, whatever the case Use Squarespace, build it yourself. If you can dream it, you can make it with Squarespace. You don't need to have any special training. You don't need to know HTML. You don't need to hire someone at great cost to do it for you. You can do it yourself with the tools that Squarespace provides because the tools are simple and powerful. They make it very easy for you to just make exactly what's in your head on the screen. You just move stuff around. It's all what you see is what you get. You just drag and drop stuff in. You start with this great template that their professional designers have created. There's a, a number of them to choose from to start with. And then you just start messing with it, start dragging things in, plopping new images, create the site that you want. You want e-commerce, you want to sell stuff, drop in the e-commerce widget. It's so simple. There's never anything to upgrade or patch. It's all done for you in the background. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You don't need to worry about that. It's great. They have built-in search engine optimization. Plus, you can buy your domain from Squarespace as well. They have a new way to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 different extensions so you can get the domain that you want. It's really just the easiest thing in the world. And even if you run into any problems, they have 24-7 award-winning customer support ready to help out anytime. So there's no reason not to do it yourself. Make it yourself. Create a website the way you want 
and you don't have to uh, spend a fortune. Go over and check out what they offer. Their their tool set is super simple. You don't even have to give them a credit card to start building your website. Just go to squarespace.com slash Jeff sent me. You get a free trial. Like I said, you don't even need to give them your credit card. And then when you're done building your site and you're ready to launch, use our promo code Jeff sent me, J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E, all one word. You'll save yourself 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. You can buy domain there as well. Save 10% with Jeff sent me. We urge you to check it out. Really, it's the simplest, the easiest, the best way to build a website. Squarespace.com slash Jeff sent me and the promo code Jeff sent me for 10% off. All right, like you guys were mentioning, there's a lot of really interesting stories this week. I think that one I'm going to pick is one that really shocked me, <laughs> quite frankly. And that is that Pokemon Go here in the very end of 2020, we still have another two months to go, basically, but it has already made a billion dollars in just in 2020 alone. Now, Pokemon Go, Pokemon Go is right there in the title. You got to be able to go. And yet here we are a year 2020 where we can't go anywhere. Most people unable to leave their houses on this planet. And somehow in the first 10 months of 2020, a billion dollars in revenue for Pokemon Go, the best year so far for Pokemon Go, uh, with player spending up 11% compared to last year, 30% more in the, than the first 10 months of 2019. To date, the game has earned almost $4.2 billion in global player spending. Holy moly, people like their Pokemon Go, and being quarantined did not stop them from playing it. Now, it's interesting that Pokemon Go did some things to make it possible for players to still go out virtually in the game and not actually have to physically be in a place. They, they basically updated the game to account for uh, COVID and for quarantine, which I think was very wise of them. But, you know, it's the number three game in 2020 be behind only PUBG Mobile and Honor of Kings as far as mobile game revenue. It's the third most played mobile game by global player spending. Alex, what do you make of this? I mean, Pokemon Go, I think, is a is a compelling game it's had a much longer life than i would have predicted and it seems to be surging now uh against what i would consider to be all odds but evidently not maybe you have a different perspective on this um no i i have a similar perspective I, it did surprise me when i read it um I, I can only presume that in in many ways maybe it's you know a, a, a big up for geeks and sneaks right maybe there's a lot of people yeah. that have been going on walks and continuing to go. do their Pokemon yeah. Go while they're stuck at home. Um, I hope so, because that at least means some heart, you know, some hearts and arteries have got a bit better, as well as Pokemon Go's bottom line. Um, I, I think so. Pokemon Go has always been really fascinating to me as a developer. It's not, you know, in the realm of games that I've or experiences that I've worked on or or been a part of. Um, I was caught up in the craze to start with, but fell off pretty quickly. Um, but it, but there's often these experiences that it can, it can be funny, right? Sometimes as a developer, um, you know, you work at a studio and you work with a lot of people that are of like mind and you see these giant things happen and sometimes you feel very distant to them. You know, sometimes you don't, they're not really an experience that you necessarily play. You know, they're, they're quote unquote a bit more mass market than maybe the kind of thing that you're building. 
Um, and, and you can sort of sit there sometimes staring at these things going, yeah, but they made a lot of money. Why aren't we doing that? Um, but then by the flip side, maybe you're like, yeah, but that's not the kind of experience that necessarily I want to build or I want to work on. So all I want to do is consume it and play and understand why people like it. And obviously I think Pokemon Go is a very unique experience it's you know it is a technically a sequel to something they did before but with the pokemon license but in terms of the experience it's selling and and, and what it allows players to do it's super compelling and very interesting and clearly with a franchise that you know millions of people love my kids have relatively recently discovered pokemon and i think like you jeff pokemon was a little bit too late for me i didn't really I, i never really got it um and now i'm starting to get it as my kids you know vicariously through my kids um and you know jeff you've talked uh, uh christian you've talked a lot about how your kids love pokemon and you know it, and, and you do too so you know it's kind of interesting to me that this franchise combined with this experience which you might not think is traditionally what people want to play but marry those two and you know it has pushed a lot of boundaries and created a, you know a different type of experience and seeing people gathered and walking around parks and you can still spot them right you still see those people and go they're playing pokemon go they're playing pokemon go because you can kind yeah. of tell the way the, you know the way people move so i'm just glad that it's still having an impact and that people are still enjoying it and that you know like most of the video game industry it hasn't been slowed down by ultimately really hasn't been slowed down by covid 600 million installs for Pokemon Go, <laughs> which is a pretty darn good number. Wow. <laughs> uh, Christian, uh, is this, I mean, I think part of this probably can be, uh, you know, comfort food. People need comfort food this year, you know, and this, this probably feels like pretty good, comfortable, warm, wonderful thing. It's a little surprising to me that nobody really has done the Pokemon Go thing since right there's been a few uh few games that have tried to do it but there hasn't really been another game to take that take the place of of that formula you know we have, we've seen a lot of turnover in other games but this you know pokemon go still is the only one that's kind of doing this thing at scale that it's doing it yeah i mean there are a few others i mean there's harry potter and some others that i could rattle off and uh but i think it, it it's similar in other genres as well right like there's league uh and you know some of that there's uh dota uh there's Fortnite and PUBG. So there's kind of like two and things but it's like there's world of warcraft and then a bunch of other things that happened along yeah. the way but there's kind of one that dominates that that airspace in a big way and i think pokemon go is a great IP that lends itself to the action you're doing in the game, kind of like how Alex talked about, like, how does it feel? Well, that's what you do. You go around and you collect and catch Pokemon and explore a world. And now I'm able to do this in the real world and interact with them. It kind of has that je ne sais quoi element to it that's like, yeah, Harry Potter, this is my opinion, but it's not built around exploring a world looking for trinkets and tokens that's not that games or that that games that's not that book's uh narrative that's not its through line this is literally the bulk of what pokemon is it's collecting catching exploring a world and maybe it's just because i live kind of in a, a suburban area of los angeles i do see a lot of people playing it as that's kind of one of the things they can do is masks on walking going around at the park uh you know like on the trails and stuff like that and and playing pokemon go um and i think it's a testament to smart design addition to the ip smartly designed ip 
by people that know what they're doing and are willing to uh, put their passion behind something. They, after COVID hit, they found ways to make the game work in in this new reality, and they em- embraced that style of the game and what it could be. They're committed to building community experiences still in a safe and fun way. And you don't hear about it in like you do a lot of other, uh, other games, certainly, but also a lot of mobile games and how it exploits its user base. You don't hear stories about predatory pricing. Um, and it is, it, it can be expensive, but it, it does these things in a way that in my opinion, feel good and aren't necessarily the um, FIFA uh, for a console game experience or uh, go to the app store and pick one uh, other mobile game and kind of predatory pricing and blocking gameplay. I think it's a testament to building your community, believing in your community and working on something that people get genuine joy from goes a long, long way coupled with, it's literally the thing you do in Pokemon. So it, it, yeah. it works. It works Makes so sense. well. Yeah. Uh, Alex, you uh, brought several other stories to our attention. Is there one or two that you uh, wanted to bring up here? Um, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, thank you. Um, definitely. There's, there's, there's a few I'll rattle through. Astrobot sounds like it's going to be amazing. Um, and it's going to be, yeah. you know, some people are saying it's one of the best launch titles ever made, which is exciting and a real love letter to PlayStation, which, you know, excite, it sounds exciting. Obviously there's verdicts floating around on PS5 and Xbox. Um, you know, people, uh, commentators have their, their boxes and some of the big sites like Eurogamer have their boxes and have, have, have cast their decision. And it seems like everybody's pretty positive about it. Um, but I, I would like to uh, be slightly cheeky and bring up two uh, two things. One, um, PT not compatible with PS5. This was a this was a story that <laughs> yeah. really made me both laugh and and cry. Um, it seems like that long running bitter saga of PT continues. Yeah, um, the people that still have it installed uh, are, are are crying yet another set of tears. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta pay yeah. for my kids' college somehow, and so that PS4 with PT installed on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it and it seems like at one point it was compatible with PS5, and it was listed as working on both PS4 and PS5, and people had it running on their that's PS5. That's the craziest part. That's yeah. the part I don't understand. Is like they flipped a switch and said, "No, people can't play this." I, I thought that's wild. So, so I think so. Interestingly, right? I had PT on my PS4. You know permanently because i was convinced i would never wanted to lose it and then there was a stealth patch that they dropped at some point which disabled it and it was disabled on my ps4 and i was really upset because oh, no. it, it was completely silent apparently i mean i guess maybe there was a notification when it happened but it was very silent and so i presume they did the same thing where somebody at konami went <gasps> um can't have it happen uh quick disable it again <laughs> silent patch and then and they actually and according to sony it was a publisher decision to change it from being ps4 and ps5 compatible to only ps4 um so i think it's it's kind of tragic that that you know that yeah. what was such a landmark and incredible experience still continues to um you know stab the knife in a little bit to us fans that were really excited about it about it happening you know there's gonna there's gonna be some year at some you know, E3 or some other conference where somebody's going to walk on stage and be like, 
we're bringing PT to the, and then people are going to go, ah, and there's going to be a whole generation of kids that are like, what is this PT thing? You know, it's no, going to be one, one quick it's gonna be like It's going to be like it's Shenmue. Gonna be a, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a Kickstarter. That's <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there uh, have been people recreating it in dreams and recreating right, it in various other yeah. places too. So it lives, yeah. it lives on in the fans' hearts. Um, <laughs> and and then the one other one, which is completely self-indulgent, um, and I hope you'll 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 allow me the time. Um, the the um, there's a, been a trend lately for these uh, odes or optical disc emulators that have been coming out. And again, as a, as a retro nerd with with hundred, with way too many consoles, um, I, I'm worried about some of my consoles dying and this, you know some of the drives, this, these old you know CD and DVD drives are starting to fade. Um, and there's been a real trend lately for for you know basically homebrew people generating these odes that allow you to swap out the drive and you know almost plug and play a new drive in. Jeff uh, Christian, I know you've talked about it a couple of times. Um, um, and there's a new one that's come out for the PlayStation called the X Station, um, which is almost, it's not quite as plug and play as some of the others, but it's very, very flexible. It's very easy to do. And they, and they, you know, this is, this is how kind of nerdy and, and, and t- uh, how much attention to detail they pay to these, um, these things. So the new patch um, allows a certain number of European only PS1 games that were locked by a very particular anti-piracy measure called LibCrypt to now work. And basically the X station firmware can decode and decipher and basically pass the message to LibCrypt and say, no, everything's fine here. You're running on a European PS1. It's all good. Um, and allow that to work. And, and I think, I think odes and, and these general, you know, this general trend towards kind of restoring old hardware, putting in a way that allows you to play a lot of the old games still on the original hardware, but with some of the convenience of digital media, um, I think is such a, you know, a very niche product, don't get me wrong, but it's such a wonderful, I, I'm so thrilled that, you know, the Saturn, the Dreamcast, the PS1, you know, um, the PS2, a lot of these consoles have these amazing pieces of technology that crazy people in their garage have managed to figure out and produce, you know, at a level by which you can buy it on on the internet from someone, you know, from a company and actually plug it into your console and, and keep it going. And, and I, for one, have already dabbled in some of them and plan to, certainly plan to get one of these X stations yeah yeah christian uh, this this is right up your alley i love it so much and i think your point like i love the way that they're like the internet don't get me wrong uh i, I owe a lot of my career to it um but it's a horrible place uh <laughs> but i like these bright spots as well where mm-hmm. it's like yes a community it exists now because of the internet there's, there's enough of us that find interest in this whereas before you know maybe be like one person at the swap meet that's like i have this ode and be like I don't, I don't care, lady. I don't know what that is. No, no, no. It's for your European PS1 game. It's like, <laughs> no one cares. And now it's like, oh yeah, that's a thing. And I can make money providing it to people and people working on patches for it for, mm-hmm. I don't know how many, no offense. I don't know how many European only PS1 games this is, but it, it's a small library mm-hmm. and someone put in the hours and time for it. I, I love it so much. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, uh, and I love I love a lot of the work that you know Digital Foundry does on these, and Retro RGB is a website that I love that talks about this stuff. You know, there is you're absolutely right. There is a community of people that are thrilled at this idea of you know I, I've I've bought all the minis right. I'm I'm a lunatic enough that I have the original games and I've bought the minis because I love the mini hardware and <laughs> you know I I I, I like to play you know classic games i i find as a developer it's it's a beneficial thing to do because there are often a lot of games you know where there's ideas that you you know i was playing um 
a game I think you love, Christian Dynamite Heady, um, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was playing that on my on actually on my original my original Genesis, and I didn't realize how kind of like almost not open world but kind of hub and spoke and kind of narratively driven that game was for you know 1991 or whenever it was released sometimes you go back to some of these games you're like oh man i can't believe that this idea existed back then i thought this was either a newer idea or a new you know and many of them are evolutions but you know and 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 power stone was a game that inspired me at one point to one of the games i was working on because i I love that idea and you know often as a developer it's useful to pull pull in some of these older experiences and play them and remember them and maybe there's ideas that you can pull out and modernize and or that reflect on ideas that you're doing there can be good ways of kind of stimulating new ways of thinking about old problems so well if yeah. you do an adopt a kid in their late 30s i know a guy who's willing <laughs> to come over and play games with their adopted dad and make them real proud <laughs> I, I i always love to talk retro mate so whenever it's all good I, i'm curious what what your feeling about remakes and remasters is you know with this love of the old hardware and the old experience do you do you think that uh, just i'll just leave it there what what is your what are your feelings about it um i'm i'm glad mostly glad that new people get to experience you know games that you know i loved at the time or was lucky enough to be around when they came out and you know and people can play them with a new lick of paint and you know obviously when you think about something like final fantasy remake that is a huge endeavor um, you know, that's yeah. incredible. You know, interestingly for me and, and for us that worked on it, Medieval, you know, I worked on Medieval, mm. Medieval 1 and 2, um, and that got remade. And that got remade yeah. by an entirely different group of people. I would have loved to have worked on it because it was so amazing. And it was such a weird feeling to, like, know that game so well. I was Lee Tester on it, so I've played that game upside down and back to front, you know, for months. Wow. Um, and to see someone else kind of take it, and that, and that was a, you know, that was a remake, that, or I guess that was a remaster. It was somewhere in the middle where they, they did remake some of the stuff. And, you know, the friend, my friends that did the original music got to sort of redo the music and, and, and remaster all the music with, with uh, new techniques and a new orchestra. And, um, but they sort of stayed very true to the original game, but gave it a new lick of paint, but added some new bits here and there. And um, it was a bizarre experience to sit down and play that game and know it so well, but feel like someone else had kind of taken it and, and adjusted it. And I'm sure a lot of the developers, you know, that, that, that maybe worked on these games and don't get to work on the remaster have similar feelings. It can be a very strange experience um, to see your baby kind of taken on and, you know, and, and invariably done do such a great job of it. I mean, if it was a, was amazing i I loved it um so so i I think i'm kind of torn in two ways where i love playing the originals and i love playing the originals on a hard on our hardware and experiencing the way they were supposed to be but i'm always curious how they take some of these games on whether they just give them a fresh lick of paint whether they refine and tune and what they adjust and change and where and sometimes it's very minor changes sometimes it's larger you know larger substantial changes i find that that very compelling and mostly i'm excited you know as you know, EA talks or Bioware talks about in the in the the Mass Effect press announced that new people can discover these these incredible games that they just don't have the access to now because it's mm. a generation away that you know they're not able to. So, um, yeah. I think it's going to get blurry when cross compat you know cross uh, backwards compatibility gets really versatile and you know you can kind of play the old game a lot easier than maybe you can play the remaster or just as yeah. easy as you play the remaster. I think that's when things get even weirder. Um, and we're getting like, but, you know, like algorithms to add HDR to games mm-hmm. that never had them oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah it's, it is. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the games that we have been playing in a segment we call the playlist. Alex, what have you been playing this week? Okay, um, so I'm going to start with a couple of, of short ones. Uh, initially, Ghost of Tsushima, basically just to seeing more praise on it. Um, I've been playing that game, I think I'm 50 hours into it now. Wow. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, everything that, that, that Christian, you said about it, I completely agree. I do, I do want to hit on a couple of things that, as a developer, I found very compelling about it. Um, one, I, I think that the way that it paces its open world is exceptional. Um, the, 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 and, and what do I mean by that? The, the, the number of, the number of activities that you get to do is just enough that there's enough that you forget, oh, I haven't followed a bird for a bit, or, you know, I haven't followed a fox, or I haven't found this, or I haven't done that. Um, they're, they're spaced out enough that it's easy for me to kind of go, okay, I'm going to follow the main story and go over here. And then in an ADD way, go, oh, oh, shiny. I'm going to go over there and shiny. I'm going to go over here. But it doesn't happen so frequently. The map isn't so overloaded with so much stuff. Yes, it's not intimidating. It's exactly. Not an, like I love so many of the Ubisoft games. Sorry to mm-hmm. interrupt. And I've talked about some of them over the years. But I do feel like I open up that map and I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go play Sonic 2. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I completely agree. And I think I pulled a little bit of a Christian on it in that I spent 35 hours in Chapter 1. Um, I deliberately didn't complete the first chapter story because I wanted to explore so much of that first part of the island because I was constantly in a very healthy way and not in an overly to your point overly overwhelming way getting pulled but around by all these side stories and side quests and you know ways and and um uh, bamboo you know the bamboo things and you know all these little th- ways i could level myself up all these ways i could unlock different parts of the story all these ways more importantly that i could kind of dive into the texture of the world a little bit more and i think you know, as many of us are a fan of Japan and a fan of that culture, I think it it brings a lot of that. You know, I'm playing it with Japanese subtitles. I'm not playing it in Kurosawa mode. I wasn't. I wish I had, but I'm also glad I didn't because I'm kind of enjoying. I feel like the Japanese um, language and subtitles is is the best way um, for me. Um, but I, I feel like that that game. It's very easy to kind of get let the game kind of drag me around in the way that I, you know, in the way that I want to, but also in the way that it presents interesting, varied things to me. Um, and now I'm, I have got through the first chapter and now I'm into the second island. I'm kind of the second part of the island. I'm doing the same thing. Um, and just kind of letting the adventure kind of unfold in front of me and, and letting my curiosity guide me, which, which is a very compelling experience. One last thing on that point. I think the wind is beneficial mm. for that. At least it Definitely. was for me as well, where it like, pointed me to where I was going, mm-hmm. but my problem here, I become beholden to an arrow on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so, and sometimes I want it. Like there were times with the wind where I would bemoan it and be like, this is a mountain. I cannot go over this mountain. That, that That's the ocean. I can, and then like, okay, enjoy the experience. But if you give me an arrow, like an mm-hmm. arrow on the ground, mm-hmm. I'm following that arrow. And because mm-hmm. Ghost didn't, I did find myself enjoying that exploration a lot more than I otherwise would have. Absolutely. And drinking in the scenery as well. I feel like I spend a lot of time, you know, kind of just enjoying, you know, that, that traversal. And I very rarely fast travel in it. I almost, the only times I really fast travel are when I want to upgrade because I'll just quickly fast travel, you know, visit the shop and then ride on out of town and, and carry on 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think that wind is, I use it a lot and I, I like that it, it keeps me, you know, kind of focused on the full screen rather than just the piece of UI. Um, just quickly, I would also like to, um, again, as a combat designer, it would be wrong for me not to talk about the combat. Um, you guys have already talked a lot about it and a lot of people have. I think the thing that really impresses me about Ghost of Tsushima's combat, and I listened to a podcast where, where they talked about it, um, this concept of stillness in combat. Um, mm. it, it's something they, they, they've talked a lot about is very, you know, very of apropos of the, of the style they're going for. Um, and the way that they capture it, two things, which you could argue are at absolute odds. Um, the way that they capture it in, you know, in very simple ways, but you know, ways in which it, it gives this pacing to combat. It gives this fluidity to your movement. Um, and it almost always makes me want to bow whenever I finish a big combat sequence. I can just swipe down on the touchpad and bow um, because it, it feels like the game is, you know, the game is allowing me to express myself. And, and if I commit a combo and I swing one too many times, I feel like, oh, I've wasted energy. I am a failure in the samurai. You know, like there's, there's ways that it, that it, you know, that it, that it creates that experience and allows you to role play in it. And some of it is automatic, you know, the way, the way they'll, you know, the way your turn at the end of a combat move or your, your, your hold the final pose, you know, at the end of the, the standoffs, um, you know, some of that is forced, but some of that is, is, is the way I will control the character. So I won't necessarily, when that happens, I won't necessarily walk away straight away. I'll let my character stand there and just breathe and be in that pose and be in that stillness. And I think, you know, uh, that is an incredible achievement and one that would be that, you know, it's, it's hard to fathom just how much iteration that must have taken, not only on the principle of how to get it, but also on the animations, you know, and on the execution of it, um, you know, the, the finesse of it. And, 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 and gameplay design is often about this tension between, especially third-person game uh, character design, is often about this tension between animation and responsiveness. You want the game to be very responsive, but you want to leverage the benefits you get of the animation of the character being on screen um, to sort of really create that fluidity and that immersion in the world. And I think every sucker, I've always been a massive fan of Sucker Punch games as a, as a, you know, as a feel gameplay feel nerd. I always feel like every one of those, I loved all the infamouses for exactly the same reason. Yeah. They had this, this flow to their combat and style that was just, it's just magic. And, and Tsushima continues that, you know, in, in every way. And I am de- deeply, deeply in love with it. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like the perfect exemplar of what you were talking about as far as feel. That's, mm. that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is on your playlist? Um, so another quick one is uh, Stories Untold, um, which is actually a game that came out, I think, uh, a couple of years ago on PC um, and, and I guess earlier in the year on Switch, um, and, but just came out on PS4. Um, and it's kind of an adventure game. It's actually created, um, I think it's written and directed by uh, John McKellen, who was quite inf- influential, I believe, in Alien Isolation, which is one of my favorite games of all time. I dearly love that game. Um, and, and I didn't know that until after I played it. Um, it's got a Stranger Things vibe. It's got the, the main artist from Stranger Things who did the poster for it. It's this puzzle adventure game. It's this kind of game in a game. It's, it's split into four chapters. It's very 80s, got a lot of synth wave as a fellow Midnight fan. Um, you know, it got, it got me going with it, with its synthy, synthy vibes. Um, each story is kind of the, this unique little idea. I won't spoil them because it's very much about the experience. But fundamentally, what they are is kind of a text based. Um, verb-based text adventure 
um, that you're kind of indirectly controlling um, the, you know, this is not a spoiler. The opening story it's in the trailer is, is basically set on an old eight bit computer. Um, and so you are, you know, you are using shortcuts to basically do the verb style adventure game checking of things um, it, it, as a British uh, game all the games kind of that game kind of loads like an old 8-bit tape game with the scrolling screen so i'm you know i'm nerding out over the fact that they've captured that i mean uh, i believe john is english so i'm not surprised but um you know it captures a lot of that style um each story is very unique they they do connect at the end as far as i understand i haven't finished it i, I think i got i got to the third chapter um but it's a really really polished very interesting um it's it's a little creepy but not overly so um, but it's got some really interesting ways in which it pushes the fourth wall and it, it and it uses this interaction mechanic to encourage you to do different things. Um, it, it's it's really, really interesting. And, and I can't wait to finish it. I highly recommend it. That is Stories Untold. And it looks like it's 10 bucks on Steam and yes. it's uh, supported on Mac OS even. So uh, lots of opportunity to play Stories Untold. Yes, what else you got? Um, so the next one is Pacer, um, which is a game that I kickstarted in April 2015. I can't, still can't quite believe <laughs> that it's <laughs> uh, it's finally come out. They 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 were true to their word, and I got my PS4 code through um, through email this week, and I finally got to play wow. it. Um, Pacer is published and developed by R8 Games, who are all ex-Sony, uh, many of them Sony Liverpool, where Wipeout was born. And this is basically a a modern day wipeout without the wipeout license. Um, but it does have some really interesting um, um, modifications of the wipeout formula. Um, I am an absolute devout wipeout fan. Um, I actually, at my previous studio, we had this process called decons where somebody would get up and do kind of a presentation on a game that they loved or a mechanic that they loved or something. And I did a whole like hour and a half on the history of wipeout. I think wipeout is a hugely influential part of our industry. I think it's one of the reasons why games are where they are right now in terms of its tone and feel it, you know, and the way it was marketed and, you know, those early days of PlayStation. I had every version of Wipeout running because I'm a nerd and I have all the games and I have all the machines to run them on. So I had a big setup with everything running. So I'm, I'm absolutely biased, right? I love Wipeout dearly. Um, what I will say is that from the minute I picked this game up, the handling is they've nailed the handling it feels fluid and responsive and smooth and it glides in a way that very much like wipeout um uh, mega collection did and, and the way you know the way wipeout has evolved over time um it's got some interesting modern day things it's got a loadout uh, a modification you can choose your weapons so instead of the old model where you would pick up different weapons on the track and use them in situ you sort of preload the weapons that you want and there's only one pickup for weapons and one pickup for shields which i think is an interesting modification it allows you to kind of both you know progress your weapon loadout and also add mods and slowly grow across different ships and have different loadouts it's an interesting level of progression um the track design is it, it captures that roller coaster aesthetic that wipeouts always tried to deliver um some of the early tracks 
are, are really interesting and they grow. There's one in particular track where you're, 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 you're floating through this um, incredible kind of giant like mega dump like it's a mega rubbish dump um with these giant crushing machines in it and it's got huge swooping hills and these giant mounds of of, of rubbish all around you um and it's, it looks beautiful it's really interesting and and um you know the, the, the tracks are spot on it's got cold storage aka tim wright who did all the music for the original wipeout and is you know still very much part of the wipeout scene he's done some original tracks for it plus a, they've got a number i think 80 odd tracks from various different bands and you know to very much capture capture that kind of electronica um uh, they've got designers republic involved who are you know the original curators of, of the original styling of wipeout um i think it's for a for a game that's been in production from a very small team it's an incredible achievement to get anything out i think it's a little bit rough around the edges when you first pick it up like the tutorial i went through the first mission of the tutorial and it sort of trained me about how to this is how you fly the ship and there wasn't a single message on screen to tell me how to fly the ship i just did a two-lap race and went well i guess i know how to fly the ship now but i didn't know what any <laughs> wow. of the pickups were what you know, what i was getting hit by you know all I, I guess all i knew was i had to finish first um but and i think that's i think that's okay right you know i, I think it's a game that they're still working on i think it's it's a good example i would argue of where attention to detail can sometimes slip when you're just trying to get something finished um but i i think that it does a good job of kind of capturing the essence of wipeout but adding a few new additional things with these loadouts with the you know with the curves it has this boost system that you can do at any time um and it also allows me to sneak in this crazy story about this guy that requested a, a car be designed like wipeout and he's going to get a two hundred thousand pound special car in the theme of Pfizer in the classic uh wipeout team colors which is super cool um but yeah if you like wipeout if you like ag racing if you like that kind of thing i think pacer is, is well worth checking out awesome dude christian i know you've been a big fan of wipeout um are you going to check out pacer yeah, it's a game i've been following on pc for a bit and i've been sitting here I, I did not google it but it has a different name when it was on um do you know what alex what it was yes, called yes it, it was originally called formula fusion Yes. Um, and that, which is what I kickstarted. And then I think two or three years, two years ago or so, they had to change it. I'm not sure why, but they had to change it to Pacer. Yeah. And so now it's out on console. And it, it's the type of thing where I'm like, this looks so great. I also just really want another wipeout. Also, there's so much to play right now. It's like <laughs> yeah. not quite what I'm looking for at a little bit of the wrong time. And mm-hmm. also, I wipe out the remaster, or I forget what it's called. Um, collection. Yes, is a stalwart on my PS4 still, yep. so I'm good. <laughs> but especially I, I, in VR, yeah, so good. Mm-hmm. But Oof. I love that there's that that team or folks from that team are, have worked on this, and I I hope I hope it builds, and I hope we get another wipeout. Yeah, me too. Uh, we can't let you go without talking about another driving game, right, Alex? Yes, yeah, driving game nerd uh, kicking in. Um, so I love it. My, my my yeah, my last one is Dirt Five. Um, I am a massive fan of Codemasters. You know, they've been around since what '86, I think. Um, I've played so many of their games. Um, w- one of the reasons I love Codemasters is one, they create great driving games, but two, I always feel like again going back to this kind of idea of feel and response. I always feel like Codemasters games have a level of slickness. 
um, that, that often belies their development team, you know, often belies that, you know, they, they obviously focus on trying to make sure the experiences are slick and polished and responsive. Their menus are always really good. The, the entrance and flow into the game and, and getting you set and getting you sort of bought in is always really good. The opening tracks, the opening races. Um, Dirt 5 is, is kind of a return to the, the classic origins of, of, of Dirt, the Dirt 2, Dirt 3, which I think a lot of fans feel like is probably arguably one of the best. Whereas, you know, the later, the later Dirt 4, started to blend a little bit close to dirt rally which is their other sort of very focused on rally game um this is from the team that are ex um evolution studios uh, as far as i understand um who are ex motorstorm um and ex drive club also two of my favorite racing games of all time where is my where is my motorstorm remaster that looks like that 2005 e3 video that target render like surely we can do that now surely on at least on ps4 certainly on, on ps5 xbox you know xbox one x we can we can uh or series x we can uh we can hit that level of visual quality now um but it, it feels a lot like uh, Motorstorm. It reminds me a lot of Motorstorm. The handling is authentic, but not overly so. Um, the chaos of the track with a number of opponents on 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 around you is very Motorstormy. Um, a lot of the um, uh, undulation in the tracks and the way that you know tracks go up hills and down hills feels very much like Drive Club, which had which you know had some really interesting track design in it. Um, some of the uh, the off-road it has a really interesting collection of off-road vehicles, including um, one uh, known as um, Formula Off-Road, which are these crazy like slap together chassis buggy things that they drive in Iceland up volcanic uh, <laughs> mounds of ash. And I only know that because one of the games I was working on years ago, I I, I was working on a driving type experience and I, I i came across this whole campaign this whole series of races that happens in scandinavia and certainly in iceland around this idea of traction and trying to race these giant v8 vehicles up slippery crazy slopes and they've it's the first time i've ever seen those vehicles in a game um and they're crazy wow. and out of control um it also does this really cool thing where it has the party atmosphere of the whole experience very much like motorstorm and drive club is there and it does this here's an, here's an example i think of, of, a, of an attention to detail um when you're in the lit menu screens there's music playing you start to load the match or the race the music continues and then as you go into the race the music shifts to be on the pa system in the track so it goes from being like you know around your head in the in the in the menus to in the world as the race and it's totally seamless and it's a silly little detail but it's one that you know is a good example of what i'm talking about this idea of you know a lot of people again like a lot of people talk about great music yeah great soundtracks for movies you don't you only notice them when they're bad when these things all come together it, it creates this experience that if you step back and look at it and go oh all these details really make me feel part of this system and immersed in this world cody's games always do that really well i think um it's got a brilliant uh, uh narrative campaign um that's voiced by um troy baker and and um Nolan North um, going back and forth. It's also got um, an authentic couple of guys that do a pod racing podcast and some of their banter is really entertaining. It's a little cheese sometimes, but I think they've done a good job of kind of striking that level of, they don't take themselves too seriously and they talk a lot between the races. Um, it's going to have 100, 120 Hertz mode on, on series X, which I'm excited about. It's got split screen. They're keeping split screen and, and mostly, so I'm playing this on PS4. It just came out. I'm mostly super excited to play this in 4k on dual sense. Cause I think, this game, mm. it already feels like there's 
some slight creaking some of the, the loading movies kind of stutter a little bit as the game's loading it feels like there's a few bits in there where maybe it's pushing the ps4 a little bit too hard and you know when it goes to next gen it's going to sing um one other quick thing and sort of talking about we were talking about ugc earlier and you know the ways in which developers allow you know players to participate it has this crazy playground mode um, where players can basically build their own kind of tracks through using set piece objects. It's very Descenders or Trapmania, Trapmania-like, um, and it's create, already creating some really cool little levels and spaces to play in um, that are, are really professional. They, they, you know, they look really finished. They look like you know Cody's made them, um, and they're super fun. And I think I'm hoping that's going to bring a lot of life to the experience and allow people to keep enjoying this game and playing it in different ways. So um, I'm a big fan of this game. I'm a big fan of the series, and I think this is a real return to form. Again, that's Dirt Five, which is uh, I think it's going to be one of the one of the big next gen games. Really, honestly, I think because it's this cross gen title, I think people are going to be talking about it as a as a strong launch title. Definitely, yeah. sounds like it. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, Christian Spicer, what is on your playlist? I'm only going to mention one thing because not a lot new this week. I am still Ring Fit adventuring, and I will say that. I love it and I hate it. Like it is, it <laughs> continues to be a real workout. I dread the days I cycle. Uh, oh, I, I Peloton three times a week. And I had my first, I was in a thing, uh, video on demand, a class on demand with someone else from geeks and sneaks. That was fun. We did a little <laughs> high fives. Um, awesome. and I do, I'm on there too. Geeks and sneaks. Yeah. Geeks. Hashtag geeks and sneaks on Peloton. Get in yeah. there. We were right on the same time. Me and someone else from there. I was like, high five, high five. Um, and then I ring fit adventure twice a week. And then I run once a week and ring fit adventure is my least favorite of those because it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> um, so I will continue to talk about that as I kind of finish up my, my, campaign there so to speak but i'm going to yield the remainder of my time because while i could continue to gush about ghost runner jeffrey canada i want to hear about what you've been playing yeah i got an early copy of spider-man miles morales um i do not yet have a playstation 5 so i've been playing it on playstation 4 oh i thought you're gonna be like wait you can't talk about it because you're not playing. <laughs> no i can talk about it i can finally talk about it um, and everyone who listens to the show knows how big a fan I was of the first Sony Spider-Man game from a couple of years ago. Uh, it is phenomenal. And I just think that they nailed so much, honestly, so much of the things Alex has been talking about all show is on display in the Spider-Man games. You know, that this, the feel of swinging through the city uh, is is so delightful. It is so exactly what you want. It's that wish fulfillment of being Spider-Man, how you need to actually have something above you to hit a, with, a, hit a web with to be able to swing, how you swing, the feeling of velocity, the, the game of the movement and how you can maximize your momentum and use it in, in various ways and all the different ways that you can be Spider-Man in that game and how the combat works and how it's so kinetic and you, you really feel like Spider-Man. Yes, of course, borrowed heavily from the Batman Arkham games, but I really loved what Insomniac did with the first Spider-Man and Miles Morales carries that torch forward. It, it feels like an expansion and a sequel all at the same time. But also it feels fresh because you've got this new character in Miles Morales and Miles Morales gets some cool new powers. If you have read any of the Miles Morales comics, you know that his his power set, his move set 
isn't exactly the same as Peter Parker's Spider-Man. Objectively better, right? Like, can I go out on a Well, yeah, you just add more, right? Exactly. It's all of them plus better ones. Yeah, you didn't didn't lose anything. You just got new stuff. Let's take Spider-Man and add invisibility. Better, better. And electric shocks, you know, it's it's pretty cool. Uh, Yeah, Uh, and the game does that too. And I think there is a, there there can be a tiny uh, complaint to, to say that like, He's too powerful now. <laughs> um, they ramp up the the enemies. There are very specifically enemies that like cancel out some of his new powers. Um, and I think that was a smart move in the sense that, yeah, he's he's pretty amazing now. Uh, spectacular and web of all at the same time. He is, you know, he is um, very potent, right? You get into trouble, it, you know, the, the wonderful Spider-Man... Um, plucking guys from above and webbing them upside down and doing all the stealth stuff now has become even more easy to accomplish when you can be invisible for a period of time. Um, So, you know, there are things where the enemies can shut off certain powers and, and he's got these venom moves now where, where he's infused with this bioelectricity that he can, you know, one shot enemies with and do all kinds of new cool stuff, shock people up into the sky and, and then, you know, stun them so that he can, uh, you can punch them into oblivion. All that stuff's really cool. But then of course, enemies come that can turn off his web powers for a, a short period of time. So it's balanced in a certain way. And the, and the new powers are super fun to, to use. Um, it is, it is a very, very fun game, but I remember in the first game for me, my play style was that I loved generating the finishers and then banking them, you know, you could have, you could put skill points into being able to bank multiple finishers. And then I would like, you know, dole those out in specific ways. And that was a lot of my strategy for dealing with big fights is like how I would dole out my finishers. And I really feel like the the finishers are still present and you still can earn them and you can still put points into having multiples of them. But now you've got a lot of finishing moves, basically. You've got these venom moves that work as finishers in, in a in a very significant way as well. So I feel like the finishers themselves have been kind of devalued a bit. It's new, it's different, and it's not bad. It's it it almost feels like you're this abundance of riches that you have so many things at your disposal. You've got new gadgets now. There's all these these crazy new gadgets now where you have these like holograms that can fight with you and beside you that are pretty rad. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff. It's still New York city, very beautiful New York city. Um, it feels familiar. Now it's kind of set in a wintry, uh, holiday period, which is fun. You get a lot of snow and, and, you know, central park has snow all in it. And that's, that's, it's kind of fun to see that the game's gorgeous on PlayStation four and the load times are extremely low on PlayStation four, which I couldn't, I was shocked, you know? I I know we're supposed to expect uh, basically zero load times on PlayStation Five, but I was getting like three or four second load times on you know on fast travel and on when you die or you know you know you you get knocked unconscious in this game, which has happened to me a, a few times. Back in the game from my from my checkpoint from my load in like three seconds, it's incredible and very much appreciated on PlayStation Four. So I can only imagine that those three or four seconds are zero on PlayStation five, which would be even more dramatic, I think, but it's, it's a Marvel, no pun intended, uh, what they're able to accomplish on the current gen hardware on this, you know, on this aged hardware, because the game looks great. You know, 
there's lots of shiny surfaces and I can't wait to see how they look with ray tracing. But they basically do a lot of fake ray tracing in the game to make it look like, you know, all the buildings in in Manhattan are reflecting lights and stuff. So I'm, I'm sure it'll be dramatic to see it for real. But you're, I, I, I got to say, if you only have a PlayStation 4, you're going to enjoy this game a lot. Uh, it is it, it, I, I don't think that the delta between PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 is going to be as dramatic as one might think. I think the PlayStation 4 experience... Now, I haven't seen the PlayStation 5 experience firsthand, so maybe I will be more impressed. But I, I'm so impressed with the PlayStation 4 experience that I don't think that there's much headroom left to, uh, to make it seem like you're really missing out if you're only able to play it on PlayStation 4. That is to say, it's a great game. You know, the storytelling in that Insomniac has brought to these Spider-Man games is so wonderful how they emphasized in the first game Peter Parker's life, not just Spider-Man's life. And again, they do that here with Miles Morales having this really interesting, vibrant, personal life, family life, characters all around him as Miles Morales, not just as Spider-Man, that are interesting and uh, fun and well-performed. And um, my only qualm is it, it feels a little more rushed as a story than the first game was. And I wish it had more time to breathe. I feel like this game's story, I mean, you get these big revelations very fast, and most of them aren't particularly surprising if you're familiar with the character from the comics, but they still, I think, could have played more interesting if they weren't so rushed. Um, I mean, just a couple of hours in, you've already got like, whoa, that person's that person, and that person's this person. We're, we're learning all these things. And I just felt like if we had a little more time to breathe, it. I, I thought the first game was paced very, very well in, in learning about Peter's life and getting comfortable with Doc Ock, for example, and before he ever becomes the supervillain. It was just such a wonderful slow burn. This game really doesn't do slow burn. It does very fast burn. <laughs> um, but it also is still very enjoyable. Um, it's just a delight to play this game. And Alex, I mean, I think as you were talking in the early part of this episode, talking about feel and all those tiny micro adjustments that are made, I just feel like Spider-Man is such a perfect example of that to really highlight how the feel of something like just the feel of swinging through Manhattan as Spider-Man is perfect. Oh, one big thing that they've added in this game that I found to be very welcome and just just cool and such a great idea is that now when you're swinging through the city, you have a, another button that you can hold down that basically lets you do like Tony Hawk style uh, freestyle moves. <laughs> like you, you you swing and then you let go of the of the of the web and you push the square button and then you can move the stick in a variety of directions and he starts doing like you know. Uh, flips and um i don't know of any skateboarding terms but like you know he'll hold his foot out like a like a skateboarding move or you know he'll do an awesome like extreme sport flippity do and then it'll give you points and it'll say like great combo you did three flips and a spinaroony or whatever and then it'll give you like xp for just doing that so literally as you're traversing through the city you can get small amounts of xp by just like having fun and flipping around and experimenting and trying to pull off like six backflips before you hit the ground. It's, 
it's just a like totally throwaway minor thing that adds a tremendous amount of fun just getting from place to place in this game. So I'm glad um, they because like the first game had you could do some tricks. I've heard it's more extensive in this, but I do like that little XP boost because before I would do it sometimes just for fun. Right. But now yeah. it's like, oh, I'm going to be doing all of this two two quickies one to your point about like the guards that kind of you know are matched to now your new skills uh i'm curious to see how that plays out in in miles morales you've definitely you know we've seen it in other games the first spider-man as well and the arkham games and totally irrelevant to the gameplay but from like the fictional world i've built out around these games i do love the villains being like you get the shield that can block his punch you (laughs) get the thing that can block his night vision yeah you get nothing not, oh why don't i get yeah i'm not giving both, both of them? one guy either yeah. yeah can i have all of those things no trevor you get this box oh i always get the box yeah um yeah. and then all right we're all gonna get in the in the van we're gonna pull up as soon as spider-man tries to get away we're gonna pull up we're gonna leap out of the van yeah gary you've got the ak-47 uh lance you've got the shield that can block his spider powers gary You've got a baton. A baton? <laughs> yeah, a baton. <laughs> yeah. We have all this gear that if one person wore it, we could defeat Spider-Man. I will give it to 10 of you. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't want spoilers here. Maybe I'll just limit this to a yes-no question. And maybe, I don't know if you've rolled credits or, or not. But my kids enjoyed watching me play the first one. And they they watched a decent amount of it and some story levels. And then one night, I was playing without them. And I was glad... Uh, I was playing without them and then I limited it to they could only watch me play the open world segments because there was one part in the first game, spoiler, where if I remember it correctly, like one of the scientists kills himself and it was like mm. very close to where my kids were watching. It was like, I'll finish later. And then it's like, I think like he gets mind control. I forget what happened, but I think he like takes a gun in one of those research tents and is like blank. And I'm like, mm, mm. nope, is this? And like for me, it was fine, but so much of the game was like very... I felt kid appropriate. We all draw our own lines as parents, but from you as a parent, like from the story perspective, is it, you know, air quote PG 13, like a hard PG 13, or does it, does it feel a little lighter or about the same as the first one? Uh, it feels a little lighter than the first one. I, I have not finished the game. I think I'm pretty close to the end. I was trying to finish before today, but I, I didn't manage it. Um, it, it, it feels, it feels, like I don't, I haven't seen anything that I would object to you showing your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I'm not you, but um, it it uh, it has an in the like the first game. It has this wonderful um, focus on community service. Also, like Miles Morales, uh, there's a big subplot and and side quests about this this food shelter that they're trying to save and that has been taken over by bad guys. Um, oh yeah, I so won't there's like lots of there's that. A, no, there's a, a character that uh, only speaks with ASL, um, American mm-hmm. Sign Language, and uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And like Miles just knows ASL. I just I love that. You know, it's it just feels very natural. And there's I don't know. It's a very inclusive game in that way, and that's I think really positive. Uh, and there isn't anything that I found to be particularly jarring, other than you know bridges collapsing and people falling into the river and you know that kind of like superhero-y danger stuff right, and bad um, guys have guns but it's not like yeah. it's not like ghost runner uh i imagine um i might start with no. open world and then see where the narrative goes in terms of letting yeah. them watch and play and cool. it's still that they still retain the thing where if you kick a guy off of you know 40 story building spider-man magically 
webs yeah. <laughs> him to the side so he doesn't fall to his death, you know, that kind of thing, cool. which I, I really appreciate. I appreciate that extra mile of, you know, Spider-Man doesn't murder people. You know, I like that. Um, but it's fantastic. You know, it, 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 it doesn't feel less than the first game. There's a bit of redundancy, you know, it's not really rewriting or reinventing the wheel, but I don't think anybody expected it to. And, and I, it's fresh enough because of the new character and the new supporting characters that it does feel like a step forward in in deepening this world and the, and you know it carries forward all of the stuff from the from the first game so in that sense it it feels like a sequel I don't, if people have played the first spider-man game then you know that miles morales is in it a bit and all of that stuff that happened in the first game happened in the history of this game so it is it is a continuation of that story and um so it, it kind of feels like a sequel as well i it's a it's a great, great game. My biggest shock, honestly, is that as one of the premier, you know, launch titles for a new console, how great it plays on the last console. Like, it plays great on PlayStation 4. And like I said, I haven't played it on PlayStation 5, so maybe I will change my tune when I have. But I have a hard time thinking anybody really needs the new console to play this particular game you know it's like you can you will enjoy this game on playstation 4 so. all right um you know i really I, we're already running kind of long but <laughs> i, I kind of want to talk some uh vr with you alex you got a, you got a few extra minutes absolutely all right let's do it the first thing i want to ask you as a developer as a field developer as as a gameplay (laughs) developer are you excited about a potential vr future or is it something that you think will remain niche uh that's a good question i i I wonder personally, this is purely me as a gamer talking, I wonder if the full immersion, the shut out the world nature of VR is ever going to be that flexible. You know, like when I think about me with my kids and my my fiance, you know, there's times where VR would be a a hard no because I can't shut myself off from the world in order to play it. But that's also the reason why it's so great. You know, that is the reason why you know, losing yourself in that world and being, you know, physically present in the world is incredible. What I will say as a developer, um, VR is, you know, you know, it's, it's that presence that, that being in the world. I remember when I first got a, a, a headset and I only had 360 videos, I was like, meh, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. I can look around. Don't care. And then I got my PSVR and I, and I got Batman and I leaned forward and I, I, you know, I looked over something and picked it up and I was like, I'm in, right. That is, <laughs> that is the immersion that, you know, that is unparalleled, right. You can't get that. And I only have a PSVR. I don't, I'm not lucky enough to have the, the shiny PC stuff. Um, I love my PSVR. I think it's, I think it's super compelling and enjoyable. I've had a lot of fun playing. I've had a lot of fun doing the Sherpering that you love to do, Jeff. I think that is, I ran a bachelor party once that was basically a VR bachelor party and I was just a Sherpa (laughs) for like four hours, which was amazing. Um, 
and, and then yeah i've had you know i wanted to quickly call back to the room vr which i think you guys talked about a while ago that yeah. my fiance and i played uh, recently and we sort of took turns to solve a puzzle each and i really love the fact that the psvr has both the you know the person in vr's view but also what they're seeing on the tv so it was right. really helpful for puzzles to you know be able to chat and talk about it and be a part of the experience even though you know a lot a, a lot like keep talking and nobody explodes and many of those other games that kind of leverage the people outside of vr as well so so there is ways you can make it work in that way. It doesn't have to be entirely solitary. Um, but yeah, I think I think the physicality, the presence, the interaction, especially if the you know a lot of the controllers get more you know more haptics and you know more of that level of you know being able to sort of feel the world as you're touching it rather than kind of you know bumping into it or cutting through it or clipping through it. Um, uh, I think will help. But um, yeah, I think I think VR is is certainly something that I'm excited about and love to love to partake in and I'm, I'm hopeful that some version of vr stroke ar will will allow us to you know to to create these these more immersive and more interactive worlds yeah yeah uh and you uh you've been playing some pixel rip 1989 um, right? so so yeah just 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 quickly um the, the 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 one vr experience i've been i've been messing with this week is called pixel ripped 1989 um again it appealed to me immediately as a retro nerd it's it's very sort of old school retro feel um it's developed by a little brazilian team uh in sao paulo called avor in immersive experiences um i watched a video of them of, of, of those guys and their development team and i felt very old because <laughs> they were all you know very young very diverse very very kind of modern video game development team which i'm super excited about and it's kind of amazing that they've managed to make a game that an old and like me feels very at home in um it's what is it it's basically a game in a game another game in a game um where you predominantly are playing on a on a small handheld console called a gear kid um, playing various levels of eight and 16-bit video games whilst trying not to get caught by a teacher in school um, and there's a whole narrative around, you know, why you are this character and why you're in, why you're playing this machine. And, and there's some interaction between the, the, the game world and, and the real world that you're in, um, none of which I want to spoil. Um, all I'll say is that the way that it leverages both the, the controller that is, you know, you are holding and can manipulate and this interaction with the world and the way that these 8-bit sprites can go from being on this little handheld machine to sometimes being in the world in front of you and getting some of that diorama stuff that, you know, that you talk about, Jeff, about being so compelling. Um, they capture that in a really interesting way and they blend the mechanics between the two modes, you know, this kind of platforming, simple platforming and sort of bring it into this 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 world in front of you as well as this world on this little handheld um it's really really cool um it grabbed me right away it was one of those ones where i, I turned it on at like half 11 at night and was like i'll play an hour of hour or so of it and then like at 2 a.m I, f- I actually finished it it's quite short i think it's about two and yeah. a half three hours um but it's totally worth it i picked it up on psn sales so i think i only paid 15 bucks for it it was totally worth it um, and, I, and then there's and I, there's also a sequel called Pix, uh, Pixel Rip 1995, I believe, which I'm really mm-hmm. excited to play and I believe continues the narrative. So um, yeah. super cool, very much captures a lot of what you've talked about so great before, Jeff, about that, you know, leveraging the benefit of VR, you know, both things you can interact with and the world in front of you and the ways in which those two can overlap. And sometimes you're doing both. You're kind of playing the handheld and dealing with the world at the same time. It's It's really, really, really interesting. Really liked it. Yeah, I agree. It's called Pixel Ripped 1989, uh, and it does have a sequel. Um, 
So good. And and now knowing what I know about you and how much you love retro games, it <laughs> does seem like the perfect, perfect game for you. It's just a love letter to retro games, you Definitely. know, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to just quickly mention, I, you know, I, one of the points that I had made when we were talking about quest two a few weeks ago, uh, was how frustrated I was with the, uh, link cable experience. And I got a number of emails from folks uh, suggesting I try the wireless streaming via virtual desktop. Um, and I finally got around to doing that. And boy, it works great. It takes a bit of doing. Uh, there, it, It's not completely uh, intuitive, a process. You have to purchase virtual desktop, which is, I think, uh, 20 bucks or 15 bucks uh, on your Oculus Quest. And you have to uh, do a number of things on your PC but it basically allows you to stream games, Steam VR games or Oculus Store games from your PC to your headset. You have to have, there's, there's a number of things that you need to have to have a smooth experience. One of which is the uh, five gigahertz uh, Wi-Fi band uh, on your router. So not all routers have that. Uh, and you have to have a pretty fast PC. Uh, but I've got it to work and it works great. I was playing Asgard's Wrath uh, without a cable, uh, it, Asgard's Wrath not supported on Quest, uh, but I was playing it on my Quest 2 without a cable. Uh, it played great. It was super slick. Once once you get through the initial setup, it works really, really seamlessly. Uh, and there's a number of guides you can find online that'll step you through the process of setting it up. It takes, I don't know, 20 minutes to set it up all told. Download a few things. Spend You have to spend some money. You spend 15 bucks or whatever it is, 20 bucks on virtual desktop. But after that... All the games that that uh, I had for my original Rift played great, and um, uh, you know I haven't tested them all. There's a, there's a number of games that have uh, some issues uh, because this isn't officially supported by Oculus. It is a bit of a hack, but it uh, the games that I tried, Lone Echo and Asgard's Wrath, played really smoothly, and I didn't have any wires, nothing weighing me down. It was pretty amazing. No external cameras. Got to play on Quest with the with the OLED displays pretty darn cool so um i i recommend people giving it a try just curious jeff did you notice any latency with that i didn't but there are a number of settings that you can mess with uh with the the virtual desktop streaming software there's a uh, you can set the a, a cap for the number of frames per second mm-hmm. um and and it you know your results may vary also your proximity to your router uh can affect it my router happens to be in the room that i was playing it mm-hmm on so i wasn't like wandering around you know using the quest as a you know completely seamless dev- a completely um untethered device like walking into my backyard or anything i was right next to my router but i didn't have any cords i didn't have any cables and i thought that was that was great so results may vary it is again not an officially supported thing and and you may end up not being able to uh, have the results i had and i think there are a few games that actually have some stuttering issues like i hear that um the Insomniac game Stormland uh, doesn't work very well, which is a big bummer because that game is very good. But um, but the two games that I tried this week both worked really really well. So yeah, it's interesting because I'm a big fan of PS Now and and uh, XCloud, and and I've been wondering if PlayStation would brave putting some VR games on PS Now. Obviously, that's a step further yeah. away, right? The game is literally running elsewhere as opposed to just in your house, but. Right. That'd be really cool if they were able to figure that out because uh, you know I've been super impressed with the way PS Now works. It's very seamless for me, and if it was possible yeah. to play a VR game without any lag, that would be cool. Well, I, I think that's the future. I mean, that's one of the things I'm excited about with with stuff like Stadia. Is like at a certain point when it 
when we work out, you know, all the kinks and that stuff, and we work out broadband in this country, I think that's the idea is that you can have, hopefully at some point, AR, VR gla- glasses that are really uh, lightweight because there's basically no processor in them at all because mm-hmm. it's all handled in the cloud. And it's just, it's literally just a display you put on your head. Um, I, I'm excited for that version of it, but I don't think yes, we're there please. yet. Yes, yeah. please. Put that on my yes, face. Please. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, this has been a fantastic episode, Alex. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such a joy. Um, thank you. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. I, I've been a huge fan of this show and you and, and Christian and, and Garnet back in the week in confirmed days and to be on this show is an honor. So thank you. Well, well, thank you. I, I can't wait to have you back. Uh, tell folks where they can keep up with you and, and the things that you do. Uh, yeah, I'm mostly only on Twitter at Rambling Alex. Um, you can also find uh, me on Instagram, uh, The Powdered Toast, Old Red and Stimpy Reference. Um, I don't have a whole lot of social media. I cut most of it out of my life um, a couple of years ago to to try and help my uh, level of distraction. Um, but I still tweet here and there. And um, if you're curious about my retro collection and take a look on Instagram. There's, there's some stuff that I built at Dice LA, which sadly I had to dismantle this week. Uh, I built a whole retro arcade that we had at the studio and the studio wow. was very generous in, in furnishing it and, and allowing me to run it. And I had 30 odd consoles set up and running and, and all the time. So, um, that's, that's how much of a retro nerd I am. <laughs> I have a garage, Alex. Like it's not, new. I mean, I'll stay outside. I'll wear a mask. You can bring it over and install it. I'll play. <laughs> you can, you can uh, look after it for me and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. diligently play it. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> Christian Spicer, what about you? What do you, uh, what do you got going on this week? Well, Twitter's the best way uh, at Spicer. My plan, but uh, these things can always change, but my plan and part of the reason uh, why I upgraded my streaming setup, my plan is when I get my PS5 to stream Miles Morales um, that Thursday and then find a regular streaming schedule that I can actually stick with for a decent long enough haul. But the plan is... Um, I thought about doing a reboxing video as everybody else was That's unboxing funny. their new consoles. I was going <laughs> to rebox my old ones. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm picking up my PS five, I think at six 30 in the morning, I did a best buy and they emailed out like we're doing early morning, like come and get it safe from the store kind of thing. So I should hopefully have it set up early Thursday. And, um, as soon as I can get that Miles Morales downloaded, playing and streaming. So that's twitch.tv slash Christian Spicer, which is uh, also where I host usually just this show, 7.15 p.m. Pacific time. But Twitter will be where I'll uh, I'll blast out if I'm playing or not. Very cool. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Canada, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, You can also email us here on the show, dlcfeedback at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your feedback, hearing questions, comments, reviews, whatever you want to send us. We appreciate it. DLCfeedback at gmail.com. Also, I have several other shows for you to check out. If you want to listen to me talk about movies and TV shows, the Slash Filmcast is where you do that. We just launched a Patreon there where we added bonus content. We got some fun After Dark episodes where you hear us talking about other stuff too. So check out all that content at slashfilmcast.com. Uh, I also do a comedy science show with Anthony Carboni called We Have Concerns. Uh, hear us talk about science and uh, fill you in on some interesting news, some news that might not be politics. It's more interesting science news, but we make it funny. We have concerns.com. Uh, and then I also stream 
uh, about sports, about football, in particular, a football league called Fan Controlled Football, which is basically Madden in real life. Do that on Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific time at twitch.tv slash FCF for Fan Controlled Football. Doing that with Josh McCuga and Patrick Dees, who's been on the show before. It's a lot of fun. Check that out. Uh, and uh, and then the Dungeon Run, which is my long-form Dungeons & Dragons show. Doing some wacky, wild, awesome stuff over there. Uh, really cool episode last week. Check that out. You can find it on YouTube by searching for The Dungeon Run or as an audio podcast by searching for The Dungeon Run there or by watching live Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. Just, just quickly, Jeff, um, as someone that grew up in England and didn't really play D&D, but has a lot of people in my industry that always talk about how they're only in the industry because they play D&D, I've always felt very weird about d and I'm like, I don't really know it, but people love it. Your show has been a brilliant way of learning about D&D, and the fact that you're able to put that together and execute it every week blows my mind. So, Wow, that's, thank I love you. It. I'm so it's, pleased it's to hear that. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm very proud of the show and, and I really, really love it. It's a ton of work, but I love it. So I'm, anytime I hear anybody uh, say something like that, it makes me feel great. So thank you. You're welcome. All right. Uh, let's wrap the show up now with our parting gifts. Hey, give us a suggestion. Alex, do you have a suggestion to help people get through their week? I do. Um, so I was going to do two, but I'm going to stick to one given the time. Um, uh, I had one silly and one important. I'm going to try and do the important one. Um, I, as an, as again, as a, as a, you might be able to tell, as someone from a, from Britain, um, was super skeptical about um, counselling or therapy. Um, I grew up in a country that doesn't really believed in it, and obviously this country does. Um, when I moved over here, I went through a very tricky divorce, um, and actually took out took on some therapy in order to try and understand some of my actions and found it very very helpful um, and I'm doing it again now the current time and current climate current all the stuff that's been going on um, it's helpful I think to to be able to talk to someone about it someone who's you know open and 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 and, and uh, a neutral party um, so so my my part and gift is tell someone about something um, that you wouldn't really normally want to tell them about um, it can be a friend. You can tell a friend about something you're you, something you did that you're ashamed of that you still hold on to. I, I've done that with a couple of my friends, and we have a bit better relationship as a result of it. Um, I va- very much value those friends that were there for me and listened to me through some of those things and checked me and checked my behavior at times. I really appreciate that. Reach out to a parent, particularly at these times when you can be at odds with a parent and maybe you don't philosoph- philosophically see eye to eye anymore like you used to. Try and understand their perspective. Try and talk to them about what you're struggling with. Uh, maybe it's your partner. Maybe it's a helpline, right? Or maybe it's therapy. Talk to someone. Your mental health, your brain chemistry, as I always say, is super important it's really easy to underestimate how much it can affect your behavior your thoughts your processes um as a creative it has a big impact on the on my creative drive um and it's one that i you know i i treat i try and treat very carefully um and try and stay open to learning some some nasty truths that will help you to be better so that will be that's my parting gift great advice great advice indeed i appreciate that uh christian spicer what about you you got a parting gift I do. Um, not as, uh, doesn't need to be listened to as seriously as what Alex said, because that is much more important. Um, I guess my only addendum to that would be like, don't do Ozark season three. If you're going to do it, like, <laughs> really, do, really do it. Um, True. My, 
<laughs> my parting gift would be, and I always feel like I get her last name wrong. Kali Mano, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Like she's been around forever and I've never taken the time to like. Minogue. Minogue. Yeah, Kali Minogue. Yes. Yeah. Minogue. Got it. Kali Minogue. Uh, she has a new album out. Disco. It is incredible. She's been a queen of pop for so long. Mm-hmm. And that to have this new album come out now, um, it reminds me a lot of Lady Gaga's album when it came out this year, where it's like the year's bad. You're in your house. You still got to dance. You got to move. <laughs> this out disco is so incredible. It's been on repeat in our house uh, all weekend. Um, pick it up. Go to your streaming service of choice. Listen to it. I cannot recommend it enough. She is just constant hit maker, and disco is full of them. Very cool. Kylie Minogue's Disco. Um, I'm going to suggest a podcast that I should have suggested a long time ago. I don't think I've ever brought it up on the show. But a friend of the show and my friend uh, Danish Syed and his buddies Matt Pearson and Jeff Larkin do a just a great podcast called Someone Should Make This. And we've, you know, we've been talking game design and, and game designers. Uh, Danish works uh, at a studio as well. And these three dudes and their guests uh, talk about ideas that they think someone should make. And it is delightful to listen to. They have such fantastic ideas. Sometimes the ideas are crazy and silly and kind of dumb <laughs> in, a, in the best possible way. Other times the ideas are like, yes, someone absolutely needs to make that because it's incredible. Uh, and, and it ranges the whole gamut in between. Uh, but what you will always know is that it is entertaining. Those guys are charming. Uh, it is a lot of fun to listen to. So check out Someone Should Make This wherever you get podcasts. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. We also got a listener-suggested parting gift. This comes from another fa- uh, friend of the show who's been a guest multiple times. Our friend Patrick Beja sent us a parting gift. Patrick says, uh, it's the book Factfulness by Hans Rosling. The guy who did that amazing TED Talk with moving graphs in 2006, which I'm sure you've seen. I listened to it over the past week in an attempt to escape the madness. And to my surprise, it was the most calming and reassuring experience I could hope for. It was also illuminating as it details a fact-based worldview in a fun, entertaining, and truly fascinating way. It turns out that we do not understand how things actually are. Really, most of us, no matter our background, actually have a very skewed understanding of today's world. In most cases, Reality is positive and hopeful because things are getting a lot better. Not everything is good, of course, but the book doesn't shy away from that. But it helps us understand things in a truly rational way, which I think is what we desperately need. I really hope that uh, you'll read it because I know you'll find it useful, helpful, and fun. Many good thoughts, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Again, that book is called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Sounds like one I would definitely enjoy. All right. That is going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks again to Alex Solman and Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. Thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for making those bumpers. Thanks to all the folks listening live in our chat room. We appreciate you. And thank you to each and every one of you. I appreciate you. And uh, I'm excited for the next uh, the next generation. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. Until next week. Think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.